KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Another winter COVID surge may have begun. The wave is already in its early stage, looking worse than anticipated. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The city council votes on a plan that could transform Mira Mesa. Developers would get incentives to break up these sort of car-centric super blocks that are so car-focused and so bad for pedestrians. And if you cut streets through some of these giant super blocks, they become more residentially friendly. North Park businesses prepare to pay a new tax, and a veteran Warwick's book buyer explains why she devoted her career to the love of books. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Holiday shoppers and partygoers are celebrating this year moving about and socializing freely without pandemic restrictions. And that could be a very bad thing. Health officials say the number of COVID cases and hospitalizations are rising dramatically across the nation. Los Angeles has seen cases triple since early November. And here in San Diego, hospitalization rates are on the rise. How deadly will this surge be? And what can we do to protect ourselves and our loved ones over the holidays? Dr. Eric Topol is here to help us figure that out. Dr. Topol is director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome to the program. Thanks, Maureen. Now, a spike in COVID cases was expected after Thanksgiving. But is this spike worse than we thought? Well, yes. Um, I think we had hoped that our immunity wall that had been built by our massive number of infections throughout the country and certainly in this region, as well as the the boosters and the vaccines and the combinations of all this would help fend off uh, another significant wave. But right now, what we're seeing, as you mentioned, Maureen, in LA, but also throughout the country, is that the wave is already in its early stage, looking worse than anticipated. So this really reflects uh, immunity waning, that is the boosters and even our infections, that immunity we have from that is not holding up as well. We need to get boosters that are more recent within the last four to six months. And also we, of course, are not using masks and mitigation. So a lot of things we could do right now to help prevent, impede this wave. New York State is the bellwether right now because they have the most of this new variant, BQ1.1, 
and also another worrisome variant just behind that called XBB. And things are looking bad there. There are worst hospitalizations for COVID in the past 10, almost 11 months. I want to talk about a little bit more about immunity. Uh, as you mentioned, the numbers show that most Amer- in fact, more than 90% of Americans have already had COVID. That plus vaccines should be giving us pretty strong immunity against the virus, shouldn't it? I'm troubled by that 90-some percent have had COVID because there are other recent assessments that are using actual antibody testing, not models. And those numbers are considerably less, you know, in the 70s and 80s. I still think there are a lot of people that haven't had COVID that are vulnerable. But also, you know, even with the vaccines and boosters, the problem is, is that when Omicron came along a year ago, that put a whole different look uh, about the durability of vaccines and uh, susceptibility to infection. So even though boosters really are essential for preventing hospitalizations, and deaths, they're not holding up much uh, with respect to infections or for very long. That's why the masks are all we have to really rely on and and high quality masks. And we're not doing that uh, very well. So we have some tools here, boosters, masks, other mitigation measures. And fortunately, we're in a better climate. We don't have as much uh, forced indoor gatherings. You know, we don't have the cold and low humidity issues that uh, a lot of the other parts of the country are confronting. So we should be doing better, uh, but uh, it also means embracing the tools that we have. Tell us more about that new dominant strain out there, BQ1.1. Right. So now we've lost all our monoclonal antibodies. So Bebtelevimab and also Evushel, the combination antibody that worked very well for immunocompromised. They no longer work because this variant has so many new mutations that it basically prevents our our antibody treatments from having an effect. And the way it hurts us is it is um, our immunity waned from prior infections and, and vaccines and boosters. And this is a double whammy because our immune system doesn't recognize it well. So the good thing is that the bivalent booster has effects against this variant. And that's another reason to get it. Uh, The Emory study, which may be the best one of all, a lab study showed it had five to 10 fold increased antibodies, neutralizing antibodies directed against BQ1.1. So it's a way that uh, when we, the bivalent booster was directed to BA5, but that's already basically faded, but we have the fortune, good fortune. It wasn't known until this you know, became a reality through the testing that we got at least a way to handle, to some extent, the new variant. Most of the time we're chasing variants, but this is one time fortuitously we've gotten a bit ahead of it. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Dr. Topa, why does it seem to be so hard for us to keep up with this virus? I, it's really crazy how we don't do things aggressively like the nasal vaccines or the pan variant, you know, universal coronavirus vaccines. Uh, it's because largely that there's this misperception, illusion that the pandemic is over, and then it just keeps coming back to haunt us. And, you know, just when we get through this wave, then we're probably going to have to deal with XBB, another variant wave, in the early part of next year. And we may have, we may be omicronized. That is, we may get a pi or a sigma, whole new family. That's why it's really essential that this country goes after nasal vaccines 
and and uh, variant proof vaccines with the utmost priority. And unfortunately, we have no congressional governmental support for doing these kinds of things. You know, you write that we collectively are not taking enough care of the vulnerable members of our communities. You just mentioned that it's still seniors and immunocompromised people who remain at greatest risk. So how is it that we're failing at that? Well, what's interesting is uh, if you look at around the world, um, in Europe, uh, in Asia, like Japan, South Korea, many other countries, Australia, New Zealand, they really look after their elders. And so, for example, the boosters, you know, 80% have had a fall booster in the most recent campaign. Our senior rate for boosters, 65 and over, is one of three, 33%. It's pitiful. Not only do we rank 70th in the world for boosters, but even worse for taking care of our elders. And also, we don't mask up with high-quality masks not just for ourselves, but for the sake of our immunocompromised people that are at least 7 million Americans, as well as people who are uh, compromised because as we get older, our immune system doesn't work as well, even in response to infections and, and vaccines. So we we helping each other. We're just not doing it, as so many other countries around the world have shown us it can be done. The media has been all over COVID news for the last two years, but this particular surge isn't really making many headlines. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it is distressing too, because for it, it's true that the flu um, part of our the epidemic in flu is the worst we've seen now in at least a decade for hospitalizations, and maybe even longer for that, for a number of cases. So that's gotten a lot of attention. That's appropriate. We also have a lot of RSV uh, for children and all, and also people of older age. So part of it is we've got other infections to deal with, but part of it is we've just got profound fatigue with COVID, understandably. But that doesn't mean it's going to go away. You know, we can't will it away. Uh, so the problem we have is we're distracted. Uh, and uh, this wave is sneaking up pretty quickly and there's very little media attention. You know, today, uh, we're just starting to see the beginning of that, but uh, it, we already started to see this taking off before Thanksgiving, and now it's accelerating. We have more than one reason, COVID, to start wearing masks again this season, don't we? You know, Maureen, it's really a threefer. Uh, that is, you've got protection against all three of the prevalent respiratory viruses. That The best way we can help reduce uh, flu besides flu shots, RSV, we don't have any vaccine, and obviously COVID. So the, it, it, if there ever was a reason to use a high-quality mask, it's right now to counter three concurrent respiratory viruses. Is this then another year that people should think twice about going to a big family get-together? Well, I think the get-togethers are important, and the ability to deal with them is that we're just not, for example, why not do the rapid test to make sure that people are not uh, asymptomatic carriers uh, and uh, or pre-symptomatic. So using rapid tests, trying to get really good ventilation and air quality. So yeah, a gathering could be indoors, but you know we're lucky here in San Diego. Oftentimes we can be um, have windows open or be outdoors. So there's lots of things we can do to reduce that risk. 
the hope is that we can do it. And not, ignoring it or being the de- denier isn't going to help anything. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you again. Thank you, Maureen. Always great to be with you in KPBS. When you think of San Diego's Mira Mesa neighborhood, you might think of car-dependent strip malls and vast open spaces. But a recently approved blueprint could bring big changes to that neighborhood. A plan approved by the city council on Monday would aim to nearly double the population of the area, as well as see the development of high-rise housing and pedestrian-friendly urban villages. Joining me now with more details on this plan is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrett. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Can you break down this plan that was just approved by city council? Uh, Yeah, it's a complex plan. It basically uh, envisions the next 30 years sort of transforming and revamping Mira Mesa from a strip mall, car-centered community to a place with urban villages that's more pedestrian-friendly, with a lot more high-rise housing and a lot more jobs. There has been a lot of talk in the past about Mira Mesa being a focal point for redevelopment. What's different with this plan? Well, I think the idea is that Mira Mesa was developed mostly in the 60s, 70s, and 80s when cars were king uh, and when strip malls were considered a good thing. And since then, we understand climate change better. We understand that pedestrian-friendly neighborhoods are more appealing to residents. Um, and so the shift in, in sort of people's perception of what is an appealing neighborhood, San Diego adopted a city of villages strategy about 20 years ago now, and this really fits with this, the revamp does. So Mira Mesa, like most neighborhoods in San Diego, are very car dependent. How would this plan look to change that? Well, one key thing is that developers would get incentives to break up these sort of car-centric super blocks that are so car-focused and so bad for pedestrians. And if you cut streets through some of these giant super blocks, they become more residentially friendly. Uh, and the developers would be able to build high-rise housing in return for breaking up the super blocks. So housing, of course, is a big part of this blueprint. How would this aim to ease the city's housing crisis? By allowing a lot of high-density housing that's near jobs and near the amenities that people want. So it's sort of simultaneously fighting climate change and solving the city's housing crisis. Uh, You know, San Diego needs to build about 20,000 new units a year, and they've been way below that. Uh, This this will help. This adds 24,000 new units. They won't happen immediately, but over the next 30 years. So Mayor Mesa will be playing a sort of a participatory role in the city meeting its goals over the next 30 years because of this plan. David, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but there are also plans to develop more parkland, bike lanes, and other public utilities. Tell us more about this and why Mira Mesa is in need of it. Yeah, well, Mira Mesa was built without enough park space uh, and certainly wasn't built with a lot of bike lanes or recreational amenities. Uh, But that's also been sort of a controversial part of this plan because community leaders feel like the things are are in the plan, but they're promised, but that there's no locations and no funding specifically for them. So they hope that they're not just dreams that will never happen. But certainly Mary Mason needs them and the community leaders are strongly lobbying for the city to make sure that those things happen. What about public transportation? Well, that's one key element that they can get away with, you'd say, all this growth is that the Sandag plans to put a new trolley line, the purple line, through Kearney Mesa and through Mira Mesa. Uh, And it's not going to start running until 2045, but that is sort of part of the long-term solution. Having mass transit in Mira Mesa, which it lacks now, would be a a huge change. 
In addition, there's some shuttles planned to the coaster and to the new Blue Line extension of the La Jolla that exists with the trolley, because that's in University City, which is near Mira Mesa. So what are city officials saying about all this? I think city officials are saying this is the, the right balance. This is a good balance between new housing. You also have some new jobs. You're going to make it more pedestrian friendly. You're trying to meet climate goals. So city officials are sort of touting this as an innovative plan that has the right balance. Okay, there are always two or three or four sides to this. Who are the critics in this plan? I would say, I mentioned the environmental critics before. They say it doesn't do enough to fight climate change. But I would say the loudest critics are neighborhood leaders. The Mira Mesa Community Planning Group asked for 13 changes to the plan, and they got zero of them. Usually when a community group asks for changes, they get some of them. But they all 13 were rejected by the city. The city sort of stuck to their guns and said, we need new housing. We need to do it this way. And community leaders wanted a guarantee they would get more parks. They wanted maybe more, less intense increase in housing, uh, but they didn't get their way. So bringing more people into the neighborhood means uh, adequate infrastructure is needed. Uh, what about that? That's the, I, that's the key thing that, that the residents are frustrated by. They're worried that they won't get the added infrastructure. And it already, I mean, Mira Mesa is notorious for traffic congestion. This plan claims that it'll reduce it. I think a lot of the residents are worried it might worsen it if the infrastructure is not built. There's plans for bridges over uh, streets, and there's plans for people to take these uh, rapid buses. But will the rapid buses happen? Will people actually embrace that type of commuting? Th those are unknowns. So what's next? Well, this is sort of the end of the line for the plan. What's next is developers have to react to the incentives. And if they do, then some of the things will happen. Uh, and I guess, uh, you know, the residents have to start embracing some of the transit and other options that are in the plan. Well, as they say, it takes a village. So I guess we shall see. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Garrett. David, thank you. Thanks. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez, in for Jade Hindman. As Russia's war on Ukraine continues to rage, KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado has the story of a North County family torn apart by the war and kept apart by U.S. immigration policy. Russia's war on Ukraine is personal for Bruce and Elena Talley. My wife is Russian, and this uh, Russia's unprovoked aggression in Ukraine has disturbed us greatly. But Elena still has family in Russia. She says they're harassed because they're against the war. If you talk with people, people call you a traitor. Then Elena's brother, Sergei Svodersky, got drafted by the Russian army. She translated his words to us during a Zoom call. He said, absolutely, that was my decision from the day one, that that's just no choice. That's scary because in Russia, I know that they will put me in prison. Go to Ukraine never was a choice. So he packed a small bag, kissed his mother goodbye, and left the only home he's ever known, planning to stay with his sister in America. I never thought I will be in a situation like this. I never thought I will be escaping. The journey would be perilous. Just to get to the Russian border took days. 
обратно вариантов нет, нет. I saw 20 years old guys who are crossing the borders. They have white faces from stress and shock. Eventually, he met up with his brother-in-law Bruce in Mexico City. Their plan to go to Tijuana to cross the border into the U.S. Sergey was very nervous. He really wants to get political asylum in the United States because if he doesn't get political asylum, he's in big trouble. He he doesn't have a future in Russia. Bruce recorded their journey on his cell phone. Okay, I'm here with Sergey. He's about ready to go across the border and or go to the border and apply for political asylum. But he says they were stopped by the U.S. Border Patrol before they could even reach the border. And they immediately put a traffic cone in front of the car. The Border Patrol officer came over and asked for our documents. So I handed our passports over. He says they explained their situation to a supervisor. He told me that it was impossible to apply at the border for political asylum. And this was a surprise to me. Their experience is not a surprise to immigration attorney Lola Saharova, who specializes in civil rights and Russian immigration cases. She says she never advises clients to present themselves at the southern border because of Title 42, a Trump-era rule that prevents people from seeking asylum at the southern border. You hear the stories of uh, cartels controlling access to the border. People sometimes have to pay money to a coyote to be taken to the border. So it's, it's kind of a last resort, but people choose to present themselves at the border despite all the dangers, which I think speaks for how desperate they are. Title 42 is set to be repealed on December 21st. But Sergey has already left Tijuana because of a call from his mother saying she was having stroke symptoms. This really upset Sergey. He, he said, I'm killing my mother. I've come here. I've been treated just the way I would be treated by Russia. And he decided against my better judgment, he was going to leave. Sergey can't go back to Russia, though. The arrest warrant has been issued against him. We're in a very, very difficult situation. He's now in Central Asia. More than a month has gone by, and the tallies are now worried about Sergey and his mental state. He's depressed, he's upset, he doesn't know what to to do next. Elena says when she speaks with her brother now, he talks about maybe going back to Russia, even if it means arrest. It's horrifying when I'm thinking that he cannot, he, he still can be in the war. He still can be in the danger just because nobody will, will give him a chance. Now she just wants someone to help put the pieces of her family back together. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. Most commercial and residential property owners in North Park belong to a business district that pays for upkeep of the high-traffic neighborhood. Starting next month, they will pay an extra tax. Among other things, the new tax money raised will be used to pay for landscaping, sanitation cleanup, and hiring private security. While a 60% majority of business district members voted to raise their own taxes, the rest did not. Here to tell us more is iNewsource reporter Crystal Niebla. Crystal, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So property owners taxing themselves, that's unusual. How does the business district work? Basically, you have groups of property owners who can tax themselves for services that go above and beyond than what the city already provides by default. 
in uh, maintenance and enhancement. These are all services that pay for uh, enhancements to help improve business in the area, but it also provides perks for residential homes nearby, keeping the streets clean, things like that. To be clear, the property owners had already been paying additional taxes. Why the new tax? So this new tax is going to be replacing one of the ones that they've already been paying. And that expiring tax is going to end by December 31st. So this new tax is going to essentially take the old tax place. This makes North Park different from other popular San Diego business districts like La Jolla and Hillcrest, right? Yeah, it has property owners taxing themselves three times. Comparing that to other communities in the city, they're the only ones who do that. Uh, There's other areas such as Hillcrest and La Jolla that do tax themselves twice, but having a third tax on themselves is, is... That award goes to North Park. So how will the additional money help North Park beyond what was already being paid for with taxes? So this money is going to generate about $480,000 from property owners. And that's just the money that's going to be collected from them. And most of it's going to be used on sanitation. And sanitation is an umbrella term for cleanups. Uh, Think of things like power washing the streets, graffiti removal, taking out trash, um, cleaning up litter, gutters, things like that. And the majority of the funding is going to be used on that, as well as other things like contracting private security firms uh, on an as-needed basis, landscaping things like that. While the majority of property owners approved the new taxes, 40% said no. Tell us about them. So some property owners are upset that they already pay for these services with the other taxes that they pay. So uh, this is going to be the third one, replacing one that's already existing, right? And the other two are supposed to be paying for services that go above and beyond than what the city already provides. So one property owner that I spoke to, she was very upset about getting a public notice that she's going to be paying this new tax. And the one that she's paying right now for the one that's expiring, it's 180 for her. And with this new tax, it's going to be 230 Uh, So that's a big jump. We punched the numbers and we calculated that there's going to be about an average of 29% increase between the old tax that's expiring and the new one that's replacing it. So, you know, she people people like this property owner that I spoke to, she she owns a condo. uh, They're upset. So what have proponents of the tax said about the need for this? So. Some of the proponents um, say that this is a necessary tax that will be able to keep up the neighborhood in that area um, along 30th Street and University Avenue. They think that it's going to do a lot of good for the businesses there, keeping them safe, clean, posting signage, uh, 
holiday decorations, all that stuff to kind of inviting people to the area to to shop and to, you know, frequent the bars, things like that. Proponents want to continue to have this level of upkeep in that area to maintain the the beauty of North Park in that area. So that that's what I found in my reporting. Well, that's certainly something uh, to look forward to for all of us who do enjoy the businesses, restaurants, and all the hot spots in North Park. I've been speaking with iNewsource reporter Crystal Niebla. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. Since Elon Musk bought Twitter, we've heard many, many stories about upheaval in the company. Thousands of employees have been fired. Advertisers have abandoned the platform, as have hundreds of high-profile tweeters. At this point, it's not clear if Musk's $44 billion Twitter purchase will be able to make a go of it in the long run. But the buyout has gotten a lot of people thinking about whether the world's social media platforms should remain in the hands of just a few billionaires. One of the people pondering that question is Nikki Usher, Associate Professor of Communications at the University of San Diego. They published an opinion piece on Slate called The Internet is Having Its Midlife Crisis. Nikki Usher joins me now and welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Why the internet having a midlife crisis? Many people think it's Elon Musk who's having a midlife crisis. Well, I mean, it's part and parcel because the internet's about as old as many people in midlife crisis mode, depending on where you count. But I think the internet has been commercial, as we know it, since 1992, but it's been around since like the late 50s, depending on where you count. And so I think we've got like a good midlife crisis range point. And I think we see it. We've seen the starting point in 2016 and now 2020. And here we are with one person owning a major communication platform. So I would say I would say it's like one of many reckoning moments for the Internet, but I think a really important one. So you think all the stories about upheaval and change within Twitter may have gotten people thinking, why does one guy own this thing anyway? Yeah, I think lots of people don't really understand the ownership structure of many of these big platforms because it's so easy to associate the platform with the figurehead. I mean, at least Facebook is publicly traded, even though Mark Zuckerberg is who we imagine owning it, right? He's still accountable to shareholders. And I think the scary thing about Twitter is one person is now running the show. The company is now a private company, but activist groups around the world turn to Twitter to help raise attention to their causes and organize. And that doesn't sit well, not just with me, but with many other people who think about this stuff. Has Twitter become so essential to the way people live that it should be thought of as a public utility? So Twitter, I think, is one of many platforms that serve as critical communication infrastructure. So you might think a little bit about what happened in Texas when the power grid fell apart. Imagine what happens when the internet falls apart, even for a stoppage in a single platform like Slack, which is used for workplace communications, can literally set companies off the rails because they can't communicate and do their business anymore. And so Twitter has become one of a number of tech platforms that 
are the bedrock of our contemporary communication infrastructure. In your article, you put forth a vision for Twitter as a public-private partnership. Tell us about that. So many people who are in the internet policy space tend to have these like broad public visions of, you know, the government will take care of it and government for the people, by the people. And I am a, a deep, deep cynic and, and a capitalist, to be quite honest. And so I'm trying to think of a way that it's sellable to imagine the internet as belonging to all of us, but also very American. And I think the way to imagine that is through a public-private partnership. We see these with stadiums, right, where, you know, Snapdragon Stadium is also SDSU. There are lots of examples of the government and industry working together. And this used to be the case with a lot of pre-digital communication technology from the telegraph to broadcast television. It's just it didn't happen for some reason in the same way with the Internet or with these specific platforms. How much do you see the government being involved, though? You know, I I kind of hate this word like the government. Right. Um, But what I do think is we need to have people return to understanding that the Internet is something that belongs to them. And it's part and parcel of how they execute and experience the human right to have information about their world. I really do believe that information is a human right and the Internet is the way that people get this information, among many others. And so I think it really has to be a bottom up conversation where people genuinely recognize that this is something that belongs to all of us and it needs to be treated with that kind of respect, maybe like water or natural gas or something else like that. In your article, you also point to the sites, Wikipedia, the Internet Archive, the Mozilla Foundation, as examples where nonprofits have entered the scene and regulated the input into that website. Is that something that Twitter could become? I think what I'm arguing for in sort of the U.S. context, and I think this is what's so important, is these platforms are stateless. There are these huge global platforms that have different regulatory frameworks in every single country that they enter. And so for us, it might very well be a public-private partnership, but for the UK, maybe the BBC starts to own Twitter. So it could look a little bit different depending on the country. My hope would be that if Twitter were more publicly owned and the administration of that was through nonprofits, that it would be an arm's length kind of approach. And I think that that's something that all non-commercial organizations struggle with, accountability to donors, accountability to philanthropy. But there's something ostensibly when you say that you're doing something in the public interest, it's really different than saying you're doing something for profit. And I think that since the internet is something that belongs to the public, that should be the guiding ethos. It seems like all the alternatives have drawbacks and that Twitter is (laughs) bound to stay messy no matter what. You know, I think Mastodon is a really, which is one of these platforms that people have proposed as a potential alternative to Twitter. It's it's tries to be very heavy handed in its self-regulation of speech and it's maddening. And so, you know, you're sort of in the situation where you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because the way that humans communicate is messy. And so if we want to have a platform that reflects the best and worst of humanity, it's going to be messy and we need to have the space for that. 
What about people who say, that's it, I'm finished with social media, it's increased a lot of harmful things for society, political polarization, conspiracy theories, the sale of personal data, and it's also an unhealthy obsession for a lot of people. Let's just watch it die. <laughs> Which, this is what we have. We talk about for an entire semester in my class because it's just hard to even wrap your head around the role that big technology plays in all of our lives. But I think it would be healthy for everyone to be much more conscious about when, why, and how they're using these technologies in their lives. And when something is free to understand it's not really free. So I don't think you can live a life absent of any form of social media or big tech, but I do think you can live a more conscious life. Fair enough. I've been speaking with Nikki Usher, Associate Professor of Communications at the University of San Diego. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. In the 1980s, it was shopping malls that drew people away from local independent bookstores around town. Then there were giant book superstores, and of course, along came Amazon. But Warwick's bookstore in La Jolla lives on, encouraging literacy for all ages. Warwick's head book buyer, Adrian Newell, is at the end of a wild ride 34-year career, witnessing the rise and fall of borders and the age of ebooks. Welcome, Adrian, and congratulations on your retirement. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So you had been with Warwick's for 34 years, but your career as a book buyer started even before that. Have you always been a bit of a bookworm? Absolutely. I'm a lifelong reader. I grew up without TV, so the form of entertainment was reading. And I had parents who really encouraged it, although they had very specific thoughts about what were good books and bad books. <laughs> So I wasn't allowed to read, you know, Hemingway or Steinbeck, you know, people like that. But I definitely grew up on all the classics. A good book can be so subjective. What makes a really good book buyer? For me, the primary characteristic, I think, is curiosity. You really have to have that sort of drive to find out about things that you don't know anything about. And also an understanding of the community that you're purchasing books for. But I, I think for me, the biggest factor has been curiosity. If I did my math correctly, Ronald Reagan was president when you started working for Warwick's. That has been a while. Why did you stay? <laughs> I stayed because I love the environment. I had actually started in the book industry in 1978, 
I work for a chain, Walden Books, and I worked for them for about four and a half years. And then I went to Aztec Shops and was assistant to the trade book buyer for approximately five years. And my first, the woman who hired me at Walden Books left after about, I want to say maybe eight months to become the buyer at Warwick's. And we stayed in touch. And I finally said to her one day, I think I'm ready to come work for you. Do you still want me? (laughs) And I was hired to work two days a week. We were right in the middle of a remodel. And I just remember going home every day and being grateful to be in a place that really had that sort of family feeling. You know, the small business component that you don't get when you're working for a big corporation or a big university. And I remember my mentor, uh, Barbara Christman, who was also the head buyer at Warwick's, she would thank me every day for doing my job. (laughs) And that was such a novel thing for me that I just, I stayed. And I I love being in an environment where we had a lot of independence and autonomy. And we had, you know, wonderful interactions with customers. And I didn't really see any reason to leave. Your time as a book buyer coincided with a tough time for the publishing industry. What changed in the book world? Uh, What hasn't changed? (laughs) When I started out, we were not computerized. You basically had to know what was in the store. This was even the case when I was at Walden Books. We had these big volumes called Books in Print, and they were alpha by title, author, or subject. And, you know, we would also have microfiche that we would use and that would be updated every week. So we've gone from that to being almost an entirely digital industry now. All of the catalogs, instead of being print catalogs, everything's on pretty much online now. So I think, you know, (laughs) it's been the whole arc of going from very old school, very low tech. A lot of the information had to be in your head to, you know, just being able to Google a couple keywords and, you know, the whole (laughs) what's available just is at your fingertips. Warwick's had a close call not too long ago when the building was being sold, but the community really rallied to save it. Is Warwick's more than just a place of business for the community? Oh, absolutely. And I think I always like to say it's a very symbiotic relationship in that we endure and survive and thrive because of the community support. But I also think that the community gains a lot from what we bring in terms of culture, you know, through our book signings and events that we've either hosted or partnered uh, with other community organizations on. I think you can't take away one component, but it was really wonderful to see how the community, you could tell that they valued what we brought to the community. And what about the COVID pandemic and the threat to bookshops? Was it a threat? Oh, absolutely. I think it was a threat to any brick and mortar business, but also specifically small business. But it's interesting in that I think a lot of independent businesses, not just bookstores, came out of that thriving. And to me, that was the the ray of sunshine behind, you know, three very, very difficult years in that the support for independent business is very strong, much stronger than it was going in. And I think people, consumers began to understand the importance of supporting their local restaurants, their local coffee shop, all of those local businesses that really help create vibrant communities. And when Amazon 
stop shipping books for a little bit or deprioritizing them. We were one of the only places in town where you could go and get a book because, you know, the chains weren't really operating at the time. And it was very difficult, but the community rallied and supported us and ordered online. And <laughs> we shipped out a lot of things and did curbside and, and just our ability to, to be able to make that pivot very quickly without having to go through a lot of, you know, red tape or any kind of corporate regulations, I think uh, was also a big benefit. From the comfort of your retirement, what do you think the future holds for local independent bookstores? I do think that there's a need for local bookstores. We have championed many causes over the years, particularly free speech issues and censorship issues. I do see a future for independent businesses, but you know, things can change very quickly. So, <laughs> but I like to remain optimistic about that. I do think that readers and communities recognize the value that we bring. I have to ask you, what is your favorite book or at least genre? Mm, that's like asking a parent what their, you know, who their favorite child is. <laughs> so it just, you know, a lot of it depends on what I'm in the mood for. I love Steinbeck. He's always been a favorite author. Edith Wharton. I do love classics. It would be really difficult for me to pinpoint a favorite book. And I always love a great thriller. So I'm pretty much game to read just about anything. The only thing I tend to steer away from are lengthy biographies. I just, I, I have to say, I don't have that much interest in reading, you know, 500 to 1,000 pages about any one person. <laughs> so... <laughs> But I would be hard-pressed to actually name a favorite book. All righty, then. I have been speaking with Adrian Newell, who for the last 34 years has been the head book buyer for Warwick's Bookstore in La Jolla. And Adrian, thanks so much for talking with us today and best wishes on your retirement. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.